Hello everyone, welcome to this week's uh, The First Take podcast. My name's Simon King, I'm an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. I have my colleague Michael Flanagan on the line with me. Michael, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well, doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. Um, as always, we're going to go through um, the the key news stories from the pharma um, market this week. Um, we'll kick off uh, where we seem to kick off most weeks with um, the latest uh, news on the um, COVID-19 vaccine front. There's been a couple of, uh, you know, big ticket news items this week. We've obviously had... Um, the approval of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, the emergency approval by the FDA. I think that happened over the weekend. Um, it's got slightly less attention, but um, I noted today that Germany has now approved use of the AstraZeneca and Oxford uh, University vaccine in uh, patients aged over 65 years. Um, for those who haven't been following it, there's been some kind of some, some real political games in Europe um, around the use of that vaccine in 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 older people um but it looks like the real world data uh, that we've seen in in recent weeks has kind of convinced the german authorities to recommend that it's now used in older patients um michael tied into that approval of the j and j vaccine i think maybe the the most interesting thing though is the fact that um the u.s government has kind of brokered this deal with merck to help uh manufacture it and so that's hopefully going to boost the supply that you guys in the States are getting over the next couple of months. Yeah. Let's hope anyway. Um, it, you know, it seems like J and J has done a, a real good job of developing this single dose COVID-19 vaccine, but it, you know, it just reading between the lines, they appear to have run into some manufacturing um, challenges here and there that may have uh, sort of slowed the production. And then on the other side, you got Merck, which um, their vaccine did not work so well. And I think they actually got out of the development entirely, but they have, you know, a, a track record of, of manufacturing vaccines that is, you know, as good as anybody. So hopefully they can combine forces and um, Merck can fill in the gaps where, where J&J maybe, uh, you know, ran into some issues and and um, get the vaccine out there by, I think Biden said everybody in the U.S. will have a, a vaccine for them by May or June or something like that. I think June, actually. So that'd be great. Good news, I guess. Yeah, great news. I mean, we've seen a few of these kind of manufacturing collaborations, but they they tended to be a larger company. I think I think there's been one announced actually today or yesterday, which is Novartis um, how, helping to manufacture the CureVac um, back yep. potentially. But it, 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 the, the other ones that have been announced have tended to be larger company helping out smaller company. This is quite interesting, I guess, because it's too obviously two big pharma companies and obviously you know as you said Merck Merck's own program not working out just a, a kind of a reminder that um you know not to take these vaccines for granted you know we've funnily enough you know it's been the likes of Merck, Sanofi, Glaxo um, those latter two companies working together that actually have run into development issues and, and smaller companies like Moderna and BioNTech have actually kind of led led the vaccine development race. So it's uh, it's definitely an interesting development. Um, moving on, I can't remember if we touched on this last week, um, but we've, we've been speaking a bit recently, you know, in the background about um, about the FDA and some of its 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 kind of newfound sort of attitude to um, to 
rescinding accelerated approvals. Um, Michael, I, I think there was a, another case of that in this past week, and it's something you've, again, been looking at closely. Yeah, you know, I think there's been, um, there's always been a little bit of chatter about accelerated approvals um, and the usefulness of getting drugs to patients as fast as possible for, for conditions like cancer where, you know, the end result is is death. Um, but then there's sort of the flip side of that. You know, if you lower the bar to approval, there's an increased risk that any drug will end up not working, you know? I mean, that's just sort of the, the nature of the beast. And, you know, so there's been a whole bolus of accelerated approvals granted for mostly cancer drugs and within cancer, uh, predominantly the checkpoint inhibitor, you know, the PD-1, PD-L1 drugs. And specifically, Keytruda and Opdivo have really, um, you know, taken advantage of the um, opportunity. And I think Keytruda has 18 uh, accelerated approvals. Optivo has 11. Uh, the next closest is four for Imbruvica uh, uh, from, from Abby and Johnson Johnson. So, you know, these two uh, PD-1 inhibitors have really gotten a ton of approvals recently. And, um, and not just recently, I mean, it back, goes back to like 2013, I think was maybe the first one. But the, you know, the, the question then is, you have to then confirm the, the fact that the drug works. And, you know, now is the, is the time when these confirmatory studies are, are starting to read out. And so there's been two different ones in the last year or so, maybe even three, uh, but two in the last month or two, actually, that's what I should say, that did not work. Um, well, now I'm getting confused because basically two two indications got pulled in the last month. Um, one was Keytruda just this week. Um, small cell lung cancer was taken off the, the label in the U.S. Uh, very recently, Opdivo had, I think, bladder cancer, if I'm if I'm I think remembering. Ob I think also small cell lung cancer, and I think it was Infimzy, which is the AstraZeneca one, was bladder, blad bladder cancer. Yeah. Right. So three indications have now been pulled off. Um, the the critics will say that it took you know a year or more from when the just speaking specifically about the Keytruda um, indication uh, withdrawal. You know, it it the, it failed the confirmatory study more than a year ago, and it finally got taken off. You know, this week. So, you know, it's it, it sort of suggests that the system is working, maybe a little bit taking a little bit longer than mm -hmm. some people might like. Um, but, yeah, there's probably going to be more of this. You know, the, the fact that Keytruda got 18 accelerated approvals. I mean, you know, not all those uh, tumor types are, are going to work out. Um, and I think one thing to keep in mind about this whole uh, accelerated approval thing is that, it's come, you know, this it's in the headline and it's in the chatter right as industry is really sort of making a push into earlier stage studies with like adjuvant and neoadjuvant um, patients. And those studies are even more reliant on surrogate markers to determine efficacy. So uh, and, and that's the question, like, will they then work out in, in the confirmatory studies? It's going to be a big question, and if FDA is getting a little more, or should we say, less lenient on their um, willingness to to take surrogate uh, markers like response rate and duration response, then that's going to have a, a big impact on um, you know studies being run in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant study and uh, companies' willingness to run them. 
so it's it's something to watch moving okay. forward. Okay. So. And I know you know some um, of the, some of those studies last. You know the like you said the adjuvant studies last. You know they're they're longer studies anyway, aren't they? So this all kind of adds up to that kind of you know maybe pushback on on some of those indications being being proved. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, so speaking of PD ones, um, there's a lot going on. Not so much in the U.S. Elsewhere, I think uh, China. I think you want know, to tell yeah. us a little about that. Yeah, there was uh, there was a, an interesting deal signed this week actually. Um, AstraZeneca, um, uh, which has its own um, PD one, we just mentioned it in FIMSI, um, which is approved for a number of indications in Western markets. It's also approved for stage three non-small cell lung cancer in China. Um, AstraZeneca has a, a significant presence in the Chinese market, um, notably higher than any of the other big pharma companies. I think China now accounts for about twenty percent of its of its glo of its annual sales. Um, but it signed a deal with um, a local player called Junshi Biosciences uh, for another, so what, basically giving it the rights to market another PD one inhibitor um, called Toripalimab for bladder cancer um the drug in china is awaiting approval for bladder cancer at the moment um and it's kind of interesting because pfizer recently signed a deal um with a chinese company uh to market or to co-market a, a pd1 inhibitor domestically and there's a few things going on here there's the, uh, you know these drugs in in on a global basis uh, you know the, the, the PD-1s, I think this year, are on track to make about $30 billion in sales. Um, you just said, Michael, I, you know, I think the first approval was sort of maybe 2014. Um, so this market's grown significantly in a relatively short space of time. And obviously, there's been a lot of interest on, you know, how these, um, you know, China's now the second largest drug drug market in the world. Um you know, have the PD-1 and the PDL one inhibitors come along at the perfect time to kind of exploit, you know, growth in the Chinese market. And it, it kind of looked like they were. But what we've seen sort of certainly in recent months is that there's there's a few domestic companies who are now really trying to aggressively compete um, by dropping their prices heavily. They, they're getting their, their PD-1s onto the, the national reference drug list. And it's notable that none of the Western uh, drugs in this class are on that list. So Invimzi's not on it, Keytruda's not on it, Obdivo's not on it, um, I don't, you know, Tecentric's not on it, that's the Roche drug. Um, and I just think this is going to be something to worth, you know, this is going to be something worth watching, is, is whether we see more of these deals where, you know, Western companies look to kind of almost do these licensing collaborations to kind of, um, you know, maybe... Um, offset some of that potential share loss because the idea being that you know you discount your price heavily to get on the on the on the kind of the government reference drug list, uh, but you do get uh, a significant you know uplift in volume because because they're kind of preferred products. Um, it looks like at the moment um, that Western companies are not prepared to compete on price. Uh, with, with their Chinese competitors. So whether these kind of in-licensing deals are going to continue, I'm not sure, but, you know, it's something to watch. And then I think on the flip side, one of the other trends that 
you know we're kind of expecting to continue over the next year is um big pharma companies in licensing some of these chinese pd ones or pdl ones to actually commercialize them in western markets so we've seen um i think it was in january Novartis paid quite a lot of money up front to buy Gene. Um, Eli Lilly has in licensed the PD-1 from Innovent, which is another Chinese company. Um, and again, something to keep an eye on. I think at the moment, if you know, if if um, if it's the if it's the big pharma company that's kind of leading the the kind of the pricing strategy in the in the US and and, and the European markets, then we're maybe not going to see. Uh, price being used as a kind of a, a competitive lever. But I think, you know, there's a few analysts now sort of suggesting, look, you know, if some of these Chinese companies, you know, maybe emboldened by the performance of their drugs domestically, decide that they don't actually need a partner to go and market in the US, then actually, you know, those companies might be much more willing to uh, to compete aggressively on price. So, you know, there's been lots of chat over the years about the checkpoint inhibitor market becoming commoditized. Um, I think in fairness, I think there's a lot of companies who are late to the game that have quite often kind of played that card. You know, these are going to be commoditized. We're going to be using checkpoint inhibitors in combination with other drugs. And I'm sure that's going to pan out to be true. But there's just this very slight inkling that actually, you know, if some of these um, Chinese developed checkpoints uh, come to the US market um, without a big pharma backer, then maybe price will become something that, that's more important. Um, anyway, something to watch. Um, Some, something I'm sure Merck's watching. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, obviously, I mean, we, we did a, funnily enough, we did a, we did a story this week looking at the biggest growth drivers um in 2020 you know based on 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 the growth that they've contributed over the last 12 months i mean keytruder is it's head and shoulders um you know positioned in in first place as the as the, as the industry's biggest growth driver i mean i think sales i want to say 14.8 billion 14.8 billion dollars last year which i think is about 3.3 billion dollars higher than 2019 um I mean, I, I don't think they're going to be losing sleep, <laughs> um, but obviously uh, it's something to watch because, you know, uh, we've spoken in the past about about obviously how reliant um, Merck is on Keytruda as well. So definitely something to watch. Um, moving now, you know, last couple of things I wanted to talk about, Michael, are actually things that happened today. Um, first up, um, just announced a couple of hours ago, actually, Amgen is acquiring um, Five Prime Therapeutics, a US biotech, for one point nine billion dollars. I know you've you've written a bit in the past about Five Prime. What do you sort of make of this deal? Is it a good move for Amgen? Uh, well, that that remains to be seen. I will say, um, but it's certainly interesting. You know, it it makes strategic sense for both companies. Um, I mean, obviously, five prime, they're just getting a pay a payout. Um, and from their perspective, it's uh, hard earned. <laughs> They've had a, you know, an up and down few years because coming out, I think they had a they had a, a lead can lead antibody for pancreatic cancer that failed a very early stage trial. And they really hit the skids a few years ago, 2017. Um, and they transitioned to this this drug uh, well, the antibody candidate anyway against FGF receptor 2B, but maratuzumab, 
Um, and, you know, they, they really wanted to um, move it forward quickly in gastric cancer. And they, they did. They jumped into a pivotal phase two trial. Um, there's been sort of a roller coaster uh, time of it lately. They, you know, they initially called it pivotal. Then they said, well, actually, well, they scaled it back and said, you know what, maybe this will be informational. And then they ended up hitting the primary endpoint pretty impressively last November. And then, <laughs> interestingly enough, they, they responded to it by saying, well, you know what, maybe maybe we will approach regulators about this. So that remains to be seen whether the, the data is enough to, to get over the line with the FDA, but clearly it got Amgen's attention. Um, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens there. But on, from the Amgen strategic perspective, you know, there's always been a little talk about their uh, pipeline being a little thin. Um, they've got it's coming through right now. The KRAS program is sort of on the verge of uh, filing, and, and tizepilumab for severe asthma has been in the news recently with some impressive phase three data. But beyond that, there's you know there's always been talk about like what else is there. Um, so you know this is a this is a product a product with bromaratuzumab that is um, potentially anyway uh, nearing a filing. Um, so you know it. it bolsters their their late stage pipeline um, and at 1.9 billion um, you know easy for us to say but it's uh, you know a small bet because um, if if this drug candidate works out um, I know there's there's talk of whether it will be really sort of biomarker um, so will it be relegated to that you know the 30 percent of, of patients that have this FGF receptor 2b um, biomarker, um, you know, or will it, you know, maybe move up in the up to first line, I think is what uh, some of the KOLs were maybe suggesting in a recent therapy trends report we had. Um, so, you know, it, it remains to be seen about um, number one, whether it'll pass muster, obviously, with regulators. And if it does, um, number two, how large the commercial opportunity will be. But for, you know, less than two billion on Amgen's part, um, it seems like it, it could be um, a smart bet. I yeah. guess we'll see. Yeah, certainly certainly a validation, I guess, for five primes sort of strategy because I think they had to do, I think there was quite a lot of reorganizing as well, wasn't there? When the previous drug kind of failed in late stage, they kind of had to sort of restructure and, you know, slim down, refocus, that type of thing. I mean, I, just, to, just to sort of speak about the opportunity as well, you know, I, I had a look at what KOLs were, you know, were saying about this drug. And as is the case with most oncology drugs, you know, lots of chatter as well about, you know, the, the, you know, the routes forward in terms of combining this with other, you know, other therapies, the PD-1s, PDL-1s spring to mind as they always do. You know, that's obviously always been the promise of the checkpoint inhibitors. So, yeah, we'll see. But, um, yeah, interesting. Like you said, interesting that Amgen's done something because I, I think the pipeline probably is a little bit on the thin side. I think most investors would say that. Um, the last thing today we wanted to talk about, um, just to throw in there, we have had some some interesting data today, data today for Eli Lilly's uh, tizepatide, which is uh, a drug I think we've spoken about previously. It's a potential first-in-class GIP, GLP-1 agonist um, for type 2 diabetes. Really, um, you know, kind of eagerly anticipated um, product. You know, I think, you know, down, you know, marked down by analysts as 
is probably one of the top two or three, um, you know, pipeline drugs in terms of, you know, potential future sales. But what really was important about the data announced today is that it was the it was the results from a phase three head to head study against um, Azempic, which is uh, a GLP one agonist um, marketed by Novo Nordisk, who are obviously going to be, um, you know, a very important competitor to um, to Eli Lilly once Tazepatide comes to market, assuming it does come to market, and. Michael, you know, as as we've kind of said before, you know, this drug looks like it could be the most efficacious diabetes drug to have ever reached the market. And I think, you know, people were kind of expecting it to be superior to um, Azemapig. But actually, not only were the data, you know, the efficacy data impressive, but, you know, a quick from my quick scanning of it, you know, the, the sort of gastrointestinal sort of side effects were pretty comparable across both products, actually. So... This feels like this is going to be something that is going to be, you know, very compelling for, uh, you know, sales representatives to take to take to endocrinologists and general practitioners in the future. I would say head head to head data. You can't really get better than that, can you, from a sales perspective? Right. That's what physicians are always, you know, are always wishing for and rarely getting. I would say. Uh, so yeah, they'll they'll be impressed by that. Um, it seems like early I, i'd say early days since we haven't really seen the nitty-gritty of the data but yeah it seems like uh terzepatide is basically doing exactly what eli Lilly was hoping and, and basically offering better efficacy with sort of the same um, gastrointestinal side effect profile as you know the available drugs which clearly are doing quite well so you'd think that it's it's going to be a, a big drug um, and in fact, I think we'll be talking to some physicians. I'll be talking to a KOL sometime soon about it and uh, get their perspective. So, yeah, um, another another win for for Eli Lilly. It seems they, yeah. they just can't stop winning. Yeah, I mean, one of the really really interesting things was um, the percentage of patients um, whose blood glucose reduction, you know, or the, you know, reductions in blood glucose basically is bringing patients on a par with non-diabetics. I think it was, I think on the higher dose of, of the Lilly drug, I think it was about 50% of patients versus about 20% treated with the Novo Nordisk drug. So that's, you know, that seems to me, um, obviously we'll see what the KOL say. We'll see what, you know, we'll see what the reaction to the data is um, when it's presented at a medical meeting. But that idea of you know of bringing patients um you know in line with non-diabetics i think is going to be sort of you know hugely compelling it's it's certainly something that other diabetes drugs don't really do so could be could be um could be a very important approval and launch when it happens um anyway that's it from us this week michael i hope you have a, a good rest of the week thank you for joining me and um, thanks for listening and um, we'll see you next week.